Hey, Steminists, it's Emlyn Gremlin here with a quick announcement. You are currently listening to an older episode of Stem Fatal, one in which we had not quite figured out how to turn the microphone on. So if the audio quality bothers you, I urge you to skip ahead to episode 17, where we are oh so crisp and oh so clean. That wasn't supposed to rhyme, but it just worked out that way. Okay, here's the app. Hey, fellow Steminists, this is Emlyn Gremlin here. And Emma Dilemma over here. <laughs> and we just have a few quick announcements before the episode. First, we have a correction, so let's walk over to the Oops Collection. So, Emma, what's our, uh, what's our correction today? All right, listening back to this week's episode about Rita Levy Montalcini, um, I realized that I misspoke a little bit <laughs> in a very embarrassing moment for an evolutionary <laughs> biologist um, when I was describing Salvador Luria's work. I said that he showed genes don't evolve in response to natural selection. That's incorrect. <laughs> what I meant to say was new mutations don't evolve in response to natural selection. So just bad word choice, essentially. And I guess in more precise detail, he showed that mutations show up randomly with respect to the selective environment of an organism. So sorry if I confuse anyone, but that's my correction. Okay, awesome. So we also just wanted to give a couple shout outs. Uh, The first one to DNA Today at DNA Podcast on Twitter for guessing Rita Levy-Montalcini last week. Um, If you want to hear them talk about a bunch of women in genetics, check out their episode 30 on uh, DNA Podcast. Also, I wanted to give out a shout out to Code Like a Girl on Twitter uh, for correctly guessing this historical uh, woman of the week who we'll talk about in a few minutes. Uh, We post these questions before our episode comes out each week, so feel free to guess. Yeah, we'll Uh, give you a shout out. Yes. I also wanted to give a shout out to people who left reviews for us on iTunes. Uh, Thank you, Cool Rider Girls Zero One, Hawk Four Nine Four Nine, Charles Bluesky. Shout out to Danny and Polly. Want a cracker for you? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. If you like the show, please remember to subscribe and write us a review on iTunes. It is super important to help people find the podcast. And those are all our announcements. So we'll get to the show now. Yeah. Have fun. Thanks. Bye. Welcome back to Stem Fatal, a women in wait <laughs> a women in wait a women in that science miserably. a women a women in science history podcast. Yes, yes, dear, <laughs> dear listeners. Oh, listeners! <laughs> no, we can't do the accents again. Oh, yeah, oh no! Oh shit! <laughs> Don't worry about it. Welcome back to another week. And yes. Oh, I'm I'm Emlyn like Gremlin. And I'm Emlyn like Dilemma. And this is we're here today. <laughs> we're still here. We're still awkward and maybe one day one day it'll be less awkward yeah. somehow. I have a I have a question for you. <gasps> Are you ready to get stimulated? Ugh. <laughs> <laughs>
Can uh, I ask you yeah. another question? That yes, please. Is a lead ask in, me any other question. <laughs> that is a lead-in to our uh, historical science woman? Emily Gremlin, yes. Okay. What female scientist has a U.S. Navy warship named after her? S.S. Moriarty. Yes. Is <laughs> no, there, is there a, right. a woman scientist named Moriarty? Or no. are you just thinking of uh, Sherlock Holmes? Yes. Okay. okay. <laughs> then no. The S.S. Augusta. Nope. The S.S. It's going to go on Franklin. for a long time, isn't it? No, I'm done. Okay. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll give you a second question that might be a little more helpful. Okay, yeah. She also, in addition to having a U.S. Navy warship named after her, she also has a supercomputer named after her at the National Energy Research Scientific Computing Center. Grace Hopper? Yes! Yay! That's awesome! I'm excited! What do you know about Grace Hopper? Mm, I know that she is a computational, like, uh, one of the first uh, computer... I don't know anything about <laughs> computers, so that's why I don't know anything So she did about something it. with computers. That's yeah, and it was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that pretty much sums it up. I think the <laughs> podcast is over. Yes, thanks. Good job. Goodbye. You did You did my work for me. <laughs> Goodbye. She did computers. It was awesome. <laughs> End of podcast. <laughs> so, I, okay, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll yeah, tell you I'll about tell her. More. Okay, so Grace Hopper was born as Grace Brewster Murray. Um, Brewster, B-R-E-W-S-T-E-R. Great middle yeah, name. Yeah, like she loved the brews. She loved the brew. If she brew. wasn't a computer scientist, she probably would have been a um, brewer. Right? Is that true? No. Oh, just because I mean, of her name. Just because of her name. Yeah. I have. There's no reason to think that's true. Actually, I know quite a few scientists that are like, maybe I'll just... Yeah, open a brewery. Stop. Maybe I just won't get my PhD <laughs> and I'll just open a brewery or do something... Well, yeah, especially people who do, like, yeast. Yeah, um, microbiome yeah. stuff. Yeah. Anyways, so she she didn't do that. Yeah. But she was born Good. Grace Brewster Murray, uh, <laughs> and she was born in New York City in 1906 to Walter Fletcher Murray, who was an owner of an insurance company, so that's her dad, mm. and Mary Campbell Van Horn, uh, who was her mom, if you... Yeah. yeah. So no, she... she was just born to her. <laughs> <laughs> So she had a curious and analytical mind, and both her parents seemed to encourage her and not limit her uh, based on her gender. Her mother had been very interested in math as a young woman, but had stopped uh, at geometry because it wasn't considered proper for a lady to study math at that time. But she was interested in math, so. And then, similarly, her father wanted all of his children to be be self-sufficient and gave his daughters the same education and opportunities as his son. That's great. Yeah, it was a very even playing field and had very encouraging parents. So one of the anecdotes I found everywhere was that when she was seven years old, she wanted to understand how clocks worked. So alarm clocks, that is. And she went around to the house and found seven alarm clocks and then took them all apart. Whoa. And then her mom found her with just like bits of alarm (laughs) clock everywhere. And instead of getting mad at her, she took all of the alarm clocks away except one and allowed her to just take that one apart to try to figure out how it worked so that's really all i found about her as a child yeah but she's done a lot of other stuff so we're gonna we're gonna get to that um so grace murray was admitted to vassar college at age 17 she uh got denied at age 16 because her latin scores weren't good enough those darn pesky latin scores nobody freaking speaks latin (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I took eight years of Latin and eight I years. Wa- I wonder why sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, that is I took a lot. all of high school and like four years in college. Oh my gosh! Yeah. And you did really well in your SATs. Yeah, it was very helpful in my SATs. Nice. Yeah, but uh, that is it. Was Vassar an all women's college? Um, then? I did not. It is now. I would think maybe. No, no it's not. No. Okay. I don't know. I'm going <laughs> to not pretend I know. Yeah. Uh, I didn't read anything saying it was. Yeah. Yeah. So she was admitted to Vassar College at age 17 and graduated uh, Phi Beta Kappa with a bachelor's in math and physics in 1928. Whoa. What is Phi Beta Kappa? She graduated Phi Beta Kappa. I think that is... Is that a sorority or is that like... An honor, like, the level of... Yeah, there are honor societies at some universities that are also kind of fraternities. Okay. I, so, yeah, I'm not quite sure what Phi Beta Kappa is. I think it's an honors Yeah, thing. I thought it's, like, you have a certain GPA or something like right. that. Anyways, I'm gonna guess it's good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she just was in a sorority. <laughs> Very important. I don't think she was in a sorority, but... So... After she got her bachelor's, she proceeded to get her master's and then her PhD in mathematics from Yale and got uh, got her PhD in 1934 at the age of 28. So early, but not crazy. Yeah. That's pretty reasonable. Yeah. I'm 28. Yeah. I don't have my PhD or my master's, but like, (laughs) it's it's in the future. You could almost. Yeah. One could. We're close. Yeah. (laughs) And while studying at Yale, she married NYU professor Vincent Fosterhopper. <gasps> Whoa. Yeah. Oh, scandalous. But from a different university. Oh, right. So okay. he's at NYU, she's at Yale. Okay, so okay. all good. Not that scandalous. Two thumbs up, all above board. <laughs> good job. Yeah. They divorced in her in the mid-40s, but she kept his name the rest of her life. So oh. she's always, from this point on, Grace yeah. Hopper. I don't hear anything else about Vincent Fosterhopper, and I'm not sure what he did, but... He was a professor. Uh, he was a prof- was he math? I don't know. Oh. Nope. NYU professor. I wonder if he was just like actually really dumb and she was like, I'm too good for you. I like th- I like this um <laughs> this story that is. I'm gonna say probably not. I he was an NYU professor. Like, I don't know why know. they got you divorced. You can get really far on just confidence. That's true. So let's not disparage poor Vincent Foster Hopper. True, maybe, he did, maybe, maybe he was they a great just, guy. Like, didn't get along. Yeah, maybe. Well, yeah, a lot happens as yeah. well. Oh, World War Two happens. Right. Uh, after Grace Hopper, now Grace Hopper, got her PhD, she began teaching. Well, she began p- teaching mathematics at Vassar in 1931. I couldn't quite figure out how this timeline worked out. Huh. So she. She got her PhD in 1934, yeah. and it got her master's before that at Yale. So I think once she got her master's, she was teaching at Vassar and doing that her PhD. Because be, they're not that... Yale and Vassar aren't that too, too far. far. Like, okay. Poughkeepsie, New York is pretty far south. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so while she was getting her PhD, she also taught mathematics at Vassar. And then in 1941, she was promoted to associate professor at wow. Vassar. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, World War II. 
Right. Right. We've kind of covered this, I feel like, in a, in a couple of our episodes. So World War II started in 1939, right? Mm-hmm. And then in December 7th, 1941, was the attack on Pearl Harbor, and U.S. declared war on Japan the following day. Um, and this is just kind of a setup for... I don't really know why I gave so much detail. <laughs> We're honestly going to become, like, World War Two buzz. Just, like, accidentally. <laughs> Um, that's good. I yeah. need to like know these things. I know, me too. Yeah. So it's World War Two is going on, and we're. I guess the whole point is we're now in World War Two. Yeah, that's just the fact, the context yes. for this time period. So Grace Hopper in 1943 decided to join the war effort, and her great grandfather had been a U.S. Navy admiral. So she wanted to go into the Navy. So before World War II, women were only allowed in the armed forces as nurses and some administrative duties. So they weren't really a big part of the armed forces. But because World War II was so big, and I think also piggybacking on the fact that World War I had happened not too far away, they needed women to kind of join the ranks. Yeah. Well, World War II was the whole, like, women going into the workplace. Yes. Phenomenon, yes, right? exactly. Yeah, so the U.S. Navy put together an all-female division called the Waves. Ooh, Have you heard I about this? That. No. Yeah, so Waves was women accepted for voluntary emergency services. My great, great aunt is actually a Wave. <gasps> Do you think she knew Grace Hopper? I don't know. Or she was, was it a lot of people? It was a lot. It was a big. Okay. But she was kind of high up, my, my great, great aunt. Aww. I need to... Figure that out. That She's 104. So cool. <gasps> oh my god. Still alive. Still lives in the house she was born in. Oh gosh. I know. So, okay, anyway. So, she joined the Waves. And although Hopper was originally rejected from the Waves because of her small size, I think she was like 105 pounds and the Whoa. minimum weight was like 120. And her age, so at this point she was 37. So she was a little old and she was a little, like, light for kind of the requirements of the Navy. But they eventually accepted her and put her as a lieutenant uh, junior grade. And Hopper was assigned to the Bureau of Ships Computational Project at Harvard University. Wow. Because of her big, strong math background. um, Where she worked on the Mark I. Is that a ship? No. uh, It's the first electromechanical computer in the U.S. It's the first big computer, the Mark I. It was like 10,000 pounds. Whoa. It was an entire room. Yeah, okay. okay. Like, if you've seen videos of, like, people putting cords into just holes. or, like, huge shelves into Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Oh, my gosh. So she worked on the Mark I, and the Mark I was developed by Howard Aiken, and under his guidance, Hopper and her colleagues used the Mark I for top-secret calculations during World War II. Whoa. Like... Needed for the, the war effort. Like, what kind of calculations? So, some of these calculations included computing rocket trajectories, <gasps> calibrating minesweepers, and although I didn't see this in many places, in one of the interviews or one of the documentaries I watched, they said that eventually they used some of these computing powers to figure out how, to calculate how to make the first atomic bombs implode. Like, that calculation of what pressure and what you needed to actually get an implosion. I feel like so much science has come out of making the atomic bomb. Yeah. Well, especially if we're talking about people who are during this time. Yeah. Yeah. After World War II, 
She requested to transfer into the regular Navy because the WAVE program was ending, but was denied because of the cutoff age uh, was 38, and at this time she was around 40. Okay. So she couldn't join the normal Navy, but she was hooked on the emerging field of computer programming at this point. And she turned down a full professor position at Vassar to continue working as like a research assistant or a research as a research position at Harvard on the Mark II or the Mark I. Okay. And later, the Mark Marks two and three. Um, is that like named after a guy, Mark, or is it like Mark? I, I don't think so. I'm sure. Like, I feel X like it probably. Oh, I don't know. I feel like it might stand for something too. Yeah. Oh, that M A R K. Yeah, machine algorithm. I'm just making. I don't know what it could be. Rightful knowledge. Machine algorithm. Rhythmic Rachi. knockers. Blech. Sorry. <laughs> Um, no, we shouldn't let Evelyn guess words. It never turns out well. So yeah, so she turned down a full professor <laughs> position to stay at Harvard and work under a Navy contract on the Mark One. And it's important to note that Hopper was not allowed to work as a professor at Harvard because at that point they didn't allow prof- female professors. So she was kind of in a tight spot where she couldn't, she wanted to stay in the Navy, but she was too old. And then she wanted yeah. to be at Harvard, but she couldn't be a professor. Wow. This is a story that has kind of made her famous, besides all of her actual, like, scientific work. But Hopper and her team were having problems with the Mark II computer because something was causing a glitch in the system. And finally, they discovered that a moth was stuck in one of the electrical switches controlling a circuit of the Mark II. And so Hopper is known for coining the term computer bug or debugging. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. And they actually, in some museum, I I forgot to write it down but they actually have the actual moth oh my god i feel like um i've seen on reddit people open up their computers and they're full of cockroaches Mm. i've never seen that like their computers aren't working and they're like i don't know what's wrong with it and they open it up and there's like ants in it or cockroaches (gasps) that's why you shouldn't eat near your computer but maybe they, I think some some bugs really like electronics. Yeah. Don't crazy ants? Yeah, yeah. They love it. So good. At some point, the fact that she could neither be a professor at Harvard nor could she be in the Navy caused her to go into the private sector. Wow. So in 1949, she started working at Eckert Mochley Computer Corporation as a senior mathematician. And this company uh, had built the first electronic computer known as ENIAC. Uh, and in the early 1950s, developed the universal automatic computer, UNIVAC. Have you heard of, a, have you heard of UNIVAC? Um, I don't think so. I mean, that word sounds familiar, mm-hmm. but it, it could be like, sounds like a vacuum yeah. or university. I don't know. So the UNIVAC was the first commercial electronic computer. Wow. And so at the time, UNIVAC became synonymous with computer. So people would be like, oh, oh I'm going to... Like Kleenex. Yeah, exactly. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. So instead nice. of, it was just pretty much synonymous because that was what everybody yeah. used. If they had a, a computer at a big business, it was going to be a Univac. Wow. And they're still like the size, half the size of your bed or something <laughs> like that. They're the size of a desk. They're not portable oh, or man. like, yeah, they're still huge. So do you know how computers work? Zeros and ones. Yes. Good. <laughs> It's kind of important to note that at the time, 
so UNIVAC was one computer that was pretty predominant, but there was a bunch of other computers, um, and the Navy had a lot of computers, and every new version, so you know if you download a program or an app onto your computer, it'll ask you what, like, do you have a Mac OS, or do right. you have a Windows, and, like, kind of what edition it is. Right, yeah. So, at the time, you had all of these different kind of OS systems or different computers. And in order to write any type of program or to program anything into that computer, you had a language specific to that computer. Okay. So if they updated anything, you had to rewrite all your code. Oh my and gosh. also the code, it wasn't zeros and ones, but it was computer specific and it was very, very tedious and really oh. hard. It was a lot of symbols and stuff like that. It wasn't intuitive at all. The so. zeros and ones, that, what is that language called? Did it come later? Or? No, that is what, that's generally what, that's it's what goes like into the, the computer. ASCII. Into the machine. It's the machine code. Okay, okay. But kind of a higher process is a operating system specific, but gotcha, that's still, gotcha. that'll tell okay, you like, okay. this is what, you need to type up for to do a for command or to do a multiplier command or something like that. Yeah. But they're still very clunky and system specific. And so they were spending so much money on programmers yeah. that had to be specific. Like you had to write code for each specific type of computer and you had to rewrite it in a different language for each different type of computer or if you updated the computer. So it was costing a lot of money and it was very tedious, yeah. essentially. Yeah. So that, that's kind of one thing that was going on. At the same time, Hopper suggested that they develop a programming language that would use English words or something similar to English words rather than these like really abstract symbols that were really hard for people to intuitively code. Right. So okay. it was a really, un, like people were using really unwieldy, non-intuitive symbols for doing their code. Yeah, and she okay. was saying, let's try to do something that's similar to, as similar to just English words that makes sense. As yeah. possible. Like something they could read and understand exactly. and teach to new people, yeah. probably. Uh, but she was told that that would not work. And so three years later, in 1952, <sighs> she published a paper on compilers, and oh. Hopper and her team created the first compiler for programming languages, <gasps> Compiler A. So essentially, uh, do you know what a compiler is? No. Yeah. So a compiler translates written instructions or your programming language into a code that is can be read by a computer. Oh. So okay. if you have a compile, so essentially whenever you download like a a program that says do you want it for Mac or for you know whatever, what it's doing is it has the same code like programming code and then it has a compiler that allows oh, you to yeah. look at it yeah, or yeah use it on each type of OS system or each type of computer. Gotcha. So the compiler is what converts your general code mm -hmm. into something that can be read by that specific computer. Oh, so nice. now you could, yeah. with compilers, you could write general code that could then be used on any computer if you just had the right compiler. Yeah. Does that make sense? It makes sense. Yes. The compiler A0 that Hopper and her team created was an important step towards creating modern programming languages. Wow. And at this time, each machine, as I, I kind of said before, has its own specific code that had to be learned, and this involved writing codes in these like kind of unintuitive symbols. And because new programming languages were proliferating 
at a really high rate because you had all these different computers. So you had to have different languages for each computer, the cost of programming and of uh, translating programs to run on uh, new hardware was extremely costly. So if you got an upgrade to a new computer, you had to rewrite all your code. Oh my gosh. So once they made this compiler, she says that nobody believed that she had a running compiler and nobody would touch it. They told me computers could only do arithmetic. So they didn't think that you could get a computer to kind of do translation. They only Uh thought you could get computers to like add these numbers or multiply, like do this equation. So she also kind of expanded what people thought you could do with computers. Do you ever think about um, the things that you don't believe can happen right now? And if, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or like when people present things to you and you're like, ugh this isn't real or like this is BS or yeah. we'll never be able to do that. Or I don't know. I have to be more open-minded. I think. I, I think so. I think we can like, I think the world is our oyster. Yeah. It just seems like a lot of these stories are like, nobody believed X, Y, Z could happen. And then they did it. Kind of. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah. So in the spring of 1959, computer experts from the government and industry came together for the conference on data system languages, um, CODASIL. And Hopper served as a technical consultant to the committee defining the new COBOL language. So this was a language. So she urged and encouraged uh, everybody to use a single programming language that based on the different, you could have then different compilers for each computer. So you could have this one language. Um, the language compiled Hopper's Flowmatic language with an IBM language called Comtran. And the COBOL programming language was close to English as Hopper had long urged. So oh, nice. when she had early, earlier said, oh, we should make this as close to English as possible, and people were like, oh, you can't do that. So they did make this COBOL programming language pretty close to English. Importantly, COBOL wasn't written by Hopper. It was just encouraged yeah. and kind of overseen by Hopper. Uh, but COBOL was written by a team of programmers, including two other women, Gene uh, oh, nice. Samet and Gertrude uh, Tierney. So, wow. And then COBOL is still used today as one of the most ubiquitous business languages to date. And a lot of it now is upkeeping systems that people had programmed before. Yeah, but at one okay. point, it was everywhere. Wow. Um, huh. Yeah. So this kind of goes to what you were saying earlier. Oh, kind no. of. <laughs> So this is a quote from Grace Hopper. She said, people have an enormous tendency to resist change. Oh, yeah. They love to say, we've always done it this way. I try to fight that. That's great. Yeah. So one of the symbolic ways she fought this tendency to resist change was that she had a clock that went counterclockwise. What? uh, In her office. Did she make it? I don't, I couldn't figure out what was going on. I don't know if she bought it or she made it. (laughs) But yeah, so it went counterclockwise, kind of to show that you don't, it doesn't have to only be Whoa. one way. And people would get really confused. That and, blows my mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And okay, so at the end of 1966, Hopper retired from the Navy Reserve as a commander. And in an interview with 60 Minutes, she said it was the saddest day of her life. <gasps> oh, why did she do was she I think just... she was forced to retire. Oh. Yeah. That sucks. But luckily... She was recalled to active duty in August 1967. Oh, so, like, okay. six months later. They were like, oh, yeah, we oh, can't yeah. do this without you. Yeah, we Thought need you. We, could. we need you, Grace. That's sweet. And so for the next ten years, Hopper served as the director of the Navy Programming Language Group for the Navy. 
1969, Hopper was awarded the first data processing. <laughs> she was awarded the first data processing management association's man of the year award. No, the first one. What? So they <laughs> na- they knew they were going to give it to Grace Hopper, but oh, yet they so still named it. Joke. No. Oh. They still named it Man of the Year Award. Because you can't possibly be a woman and be that good. Except the (laughs) first one we're going to give out is to a woman. Just name it an award. I know. (laughs) You don't understand. If it was like they had already named it and she was later on and they gave it to her, it might make sense. But if you're the first, they're making this award and you're the first one, why are you naming it? So Anyways, <laughs> so so I love men. Sorry. <laughs> only after another woman won won the award ten years later. Uh, this person's uh, Ruth Davis. Yeah. The award was finally renamed to the Distinguished Information Sciences Award. What a stupid! <laughs> just never call it the Man of the Year Award. It's that easy. <laughs> uh, anyways, I thought that was just so funny. So, in the 1970s, oh, man. she developed standards for testing computer systems and programming languages, such as COBOL, which was that one that she oversaw, yeah. and also Fortran. And in the 80s, oh, wow. the yeah. In the 80s, these tests were incorporated by the National Bureau of Standards. And then in 1973, she was promoted to captain. In 1983, she was promoted to commodore. And in 1985, she became rear admiral. Whoa. Is that the top? Uh, no. It's the bottom of the admirals. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's the bottom of the top. It's the rear, yeah. It's the rear. It's the rear of the front. Okay. Yeah. And then she retired wow. in 1986 at the age of 79 as the oldest serving officer in the, in yeah, the armed services. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> nice. But apparently Grace Hopper did not want to retire. Yeah. So then she said she would be bored stiff if she stopped working entirely. So she worked the computer industry for several years after her retirement from the Navy. Oh, okay. So she just kept, kept working. Yeah. And in 1991, she received the National Medal of Technology, becoming the first female to receive this award. Wow. And so uh, this is the highest honor the United States can confer to a U.S. citizen for achievements related to technological progress. And they gave it to her for her pioneering accomplishments in the development of computer programming languages that simplified computer technology and opened the door to a significantly larger universe of users. Wow. Yeah. And so Grace Hopper is also famous for her visual aids during seminars and talks. So apparently when generals and admirals would ask her why satellite communication takes so long, Uh uh, she would show them a piece of wire that was just under one foot, so 300 millimeters. Uh And this represents the maximal distance light can travel in a nanosecond. Wow. And she would just be... She would just show them, she would just, like, shake this, like, piece of wire at them. And be like, think how many of these it takes to get back to the, from the satellite yeah. back to you. I think we should bring back visuals in seminars. Mm-hmm. Or, like, besides PowerPoint. And, tangible. Yes, yeah, for sure. And she also used this, uh, this, like, little nanosecond wire yeah. to tell people why they shouldn't waste even a nanosecond. Because it was, like, Whoa. a tangible. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Okay. So, so Grace Hopper died on New Year's Day in 1992 in her sleep, and she was 85. 
and she was buried in Arlington National Cemetery with full military oh, honors. Whoa, cool. I've been there. Okay, so a little bit about her legacy. She was awarded 40 honorary degrees and dozens of other awards. Uh, posthumous, post posthumously? Posthumously. Posthumously? Posthumously? Listeners, let us know. <laughs> I think it's pos... I think, what did you say? Pos... Wait, now I don't know. Posthumously? Posthumously. Posthumously. <laughs> President Obama <laughs> awarded her with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Aww. Uh, which is the highest civilian That's award so in the United cool. States. And then every year, the world's largest gathering of women computer scientists and technologists occurs, and this is called the Grace Hopper Celebration of wow. Women in Computing. That's amazing. And then finally, kind of as I said in the beginning, the U.S. Navy guided missile destroyer USS Hopper is named after her. Whoa. Yeah. That's great. And that's Grace Hopper. Yeah. I hope I explained computers, because I don't. (laughs) You know, I don't think I'll ever, like, really understand computers. At this time, they had the, like, you had to feed cards. So before they had higher level programming languages they would like punch punch holes holes for the zeros and ones that corresponded to whatever i know which is insane i still don't get it (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. um i wonder what she would think of like smartphones and i watched some documentaries about her and Uh with or and some interviews with her she is awesome (laughs) and she is so optimistic and forward like, oh, was so optimistic so cool. and was just excited for the future yeah. and thought we could do anything and was not afraid of technology or... Nice. Yeah. At least she was there for, like, the birth of the internet, right? 1992? Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 Internet came around in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. She sounds really cool. Yeah. I wonder, like... Did you read any more about her personal life after she was married? Um, no. She got divorced during or after World War II, like the yeah. 45 or something like that. And then was pretty much like a workaholic, kind of. Yeah, I mean, I think she... Or just happy doing it. Yeah, I think yeah. she loved her job and, and didn't like being idle. and. Yeah. So. That's really cool. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> she was... no So... Yeah, she's, like, very, very short. I think she's, like, five <laughs> foot when she gets older and yeah. just is known to, like, go around and she's just, like, chain smoking. <laughs> and she always wore her mil- her Navy outfit. Yeah, I think I've seen pictures yeah. of her in that cute, cute hat. Yeah, cool. yeah. Yeah, and she, it was interesting. She was definitely, didn't consider herself a feminist. Her, her experience, there was, like, nothing that a woman could do. Yeah. Well, not nothing, but... I don't think she thought that she was held... She didn't feel like she was held back in any way and just didn't think that it was, like, you needed to be feminist because everybody was equal. So, like, she had a very different interaction than, like, a lot of people did. Yeah. At Except that, time. that she couldn't be a professor at heart. You know? It's yeah. Like there's yeah. There's little things... I, I don't know where... if she was just so optimistic yeah. that she didn't see the barriers. Or she just, um, I guess, just took whatever opportunity mm-hmm. she had and... And was happy with them. Yeah. I mean, she... Yeah. She rose through the ranks. So maybe when one door closes, a better door opens. And she just didn't think it was... But yeah, I I thought that was pretty interesting. And she... She... In an interview with, like, 60 Minutes, I think, 
they asked if she thought that women should be in the armed forces in like the um combat combat yes yeah. that word combat <laughs> and she like didn't think women should be in combat because she didn't think they would do it as well and there and then the person was like but what about like you being a mathematician in the navy and she was like women have always been mathematicians so like I also was like all right I mean yeah she different kind of, like a hit, a miss and a hit yeah yeah so yeah, yeah. she was nice. very interesting yeah I liked, I liked listening to her a lot yeah kind yeah. of a trailblazer mm-hmm, with a definitely little bit of old school yeah 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 she was cool nice. yeah so that's Grace Hopper okay break mm-hmm. work, 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 work. <laughs> this is our next section yeah this is the women who work. Right, shout out to badass ladies doing science now. Yes. Yes. <laughs> exactly. All right. So the first shout out goes to Susanna Rossi and Karen Krakowski. Woo woo! I woo, love woo, it. Woo. What did they do? Su- Susanna or Susanna um, is a neuroscientist okay. at UCSF, uh, University of California, San Francisco. Yep. And Karen is a postdoc in her lab. They, along with uh, quite a few other collaborators, published a study this week. Okay, wait. I don't want to give away too much. Okay. Let me ask you. Do you want me to guess what it's about? No, no, no. No. I'm going to ask you a question, (laughs) first of all. Okay. What do you think is one of the most dangerous things about humans moving to Mars? Well, from the Martian... I don't even think that this was addressed in The Martian. The microbiome and your lack of. Being in one place with a bunch of people and not killing them. (laughs) No. Well, there is that new podcast called The Habitat that's all about um, all these experiments that they're doing where they put a bunch of people in a place simulating people living on Mars. Gosh. Anyways, apparently I'm just shouting I mean, out to other podcasts. How do Earth without killing each other? We don't really, so. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not quite, a, it's, it's like the real house. Or no, it's like um, real world. Yeah. Kind of. Because you're like oh, stuck in I one see. really small place. Oh my gosh. Or like Big Brother. Okay. Um, Think of something more atmospheric. Like about the planet itself. Like why would. Why would it. Why yeah. would Mars itself. How can it harm us or. Got weird gravity. I actually don't know about that, but here's... <laughs> <laughs> Tell me what you do know. Okay, so one of the dangers that humans face going into deep space or somewhere like Mars is cosmic radiation. Oh, That's okay. like thousands of times more powerful than radiation on Earth or even like if we travel to the moon or the International Space Station. Yeah. Mars is... Closer to the sun? Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars. Okay. These are very good things we're Jupiter, learning. Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. by Pluto. Yeah. Pluto Uranus Earth. is just the worst. Yeah. We're not going to Uranus. No. Okay. <laughs> okay, okay. If we go to Mars, <laughs> we face the danger of a lot of cosmic radiation. One of the reasons why radiation is bad... Um, and they've studied this in Rossi's lab, is that mice exposed to lots of radiation they've found have problems with memory, oh. social interactions, and anxiety. Like In addition to cancer? Probably, yeah. Right? Radiation? Cancer? Yeah. Yeah, so cosmic radiation in the lab has had effects on, 
has had effects on the mice's memory, uh, social interactions, and anxiety, which is like, and some of the symptoms are like similar to Alzheimer's symptoms. Oh, that's not good. Yeah. And these like cognitive impairments are potentially caused by the activation of cells called microglia, which are immune defense cells in the central nervous system. Okay. So like if your brain becomes infected by like a virus or a fungus, these microglia will search out that foreign invader and engulf it and try to destroy it. Okay. So they're immune cells in the brain. After radiation, they become really active. So they become too active. Like they cause inflammation in the brain and they destroy and consume synapses, which are the connections between nerve cells. Okay. So yeah, similar to brain changes that you see in Alzheimer's patients. Oh, that's not good. Yeah. You do not want astronauts with Alzheimer's. Right, yeah, like people going to Mars and then going crazy almost. Yeah. Um, okay, wait. But here's the cool thing. Okay. Or, this is what they found okay. in their new paper. Hold oh, that was an old paper? Yeah, that okay. was all bad. This is all <laughs> teaser material. Okay. They are trying out different drugs to combat the effects mm. In the brain after radiation. And this week they published a paper on a successful drug. The drug is called PLX5622. And it's produced by a pharmaceutical company, Plexicon. Okay. And I don't actually even know what the drug is on a like chemical basis. But it's been shown to prevent cognitive deficits in mouse during cancer radiation therapy when it's administered prior to irradiation of the brain. However, in this experiment, they gave it to mice like a week after they experienced radiation, uh-huh. and they still saw that it prevented the activation of microglia. Oh, nice. So they could give it to the mice like after experiencing radiation, and it helped. Nice. And Very it's cool. cool like because maybe this will be helpful for us going to Mars. Mm-hmm. It also might be a helpful treatment for certain uh, cancers, I think, in the brain Mm -hmm. and for Alzheimer's and other, like, cognitive problems you get in life. Very cool. Yeah. I have no interest in going to Mars. I don't want to go to Mars either. I think it would be a little bit lonely for me. Yeah. I mean, you could bring people. But (laughs) you kill all of them. Maybe if I were there with people I really like and that's it. Yeah. It just would be such a different way of life. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think my family would want to go, so... If Bob Dylan was there, though. No, what's really? his name? Not what? Bob Dylan. The guy who's in The Martian. Matt Damon. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you would go for Bob Dylan? Like, I guess he's I a little old, Bob Dylan. he could play you some songs. <laughs> He'd entertain me. Uh, uh, Matt Dylan, yes. No, Matt Damon. Matt Damon. Okay. Matt Dillon is the guy in um, The Outsiders, and there's something about Mary. I don't know. I don't like the cut of his jib. Really? I used to have a huge crush on him. Really? He looks like a less funny-looking... Um, Who's the... He looks like Jim Carrey. <laughs> no, he doesn't. <laughs> yes, he does. Oh 
One of these is hint. This is this is Matt oh. Dillon, and that's Jim Carrey. Those are both Jim Carrey. <laughs> I think we've gotten off topic. Anyway, good job, gals. Yep, good job. Good going, gals. Good. GGG. No, that's wrong. GGG. That's a very different yeah, GGG. Okay, good job. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you got another one for me. Second shout out. Woo-woo. This shout out goes to. A team, including a man. I'm sorry, but not sorry. <laughs> okay. A team of researchers this week. Richard Unsworth, Leanne Cullen Unsworth, and Lena Matwana Nordland. So two out of three. Good going, gals. <laughs> my new thing, I guess. Okay. Published a study this week in conservation letters that provided evidence that a fifth of the world's largest fisheries are dependent on seagrass meadows. Oh. Yeah. Very and cool. healthy seagrass meadows in particular. So they're seagrasses, those are marine flowering plants, and they form these huge meadows, basically, in shallow seas and provide habitat for a lot of fish, including a lot of commercial fish stocks. Mm-hmm. And they provide habitat for food that the fish eat, like yeah. invertebrates. However, seagrasses are declining rapidly due to land and sea-based threats like runoff, coastal development, boat damage, trawling, etc., you name it. And possibly climate change, like warmer, more acidic oceans. Mm-hmm. And this paper essentially discussed how imperative these seagrass meadows were to fishery health. Okay. And basically we're calling on fishery management people to try to help in seagrass conservation since their populations are declining so rapidly. Yeah. Yeah. Those are like nurseries or areas where there's a lot of growth of fish. It kind of behooves them to keep them healthy. And they need, yeah. And most conservation agencies don't get a ton of support. Mm -hmm. And so getting like a huge industry, like the fishing industry on the side. Yeah is, I think, like, really imperative to saving a lot of seagrasses. Yeah, very cool. And so, yeah, it's just a really nice paper um, discussing the importance of seagrasses to fisheries around the world. Nice. Yeah. Um, so, good job, you guys. Woo! <laughs> Yay! And that's it for shout-outs. I love it. And we're not doing it. We're going to put our trivia on Twitter. We're just going to yeah. have, tri- like, pre-episode trivia about... Is that what we're doing? Yeah, yeah. We'll just ask people to... We'll put up teasers and you can guess, like, who we're going to be talking about in the next week. Yeah. And trivia on the pod is canceled. (laughs) It's canceled. (laughs) Sounds so dire. (laughs) Okay, announcements? Announcements. So I forgot to give a shout out at the beginning, but uh, Grace Hopper was suggested by the Zipkin Lab. So at Zipkin Lab. So thanks, guys, for giving yeah. me that suggestion. Please uh, subscribe and rate us on iTunes and yeah. give us a review so people can find us. Yeah. We want to keep this up. We'd like people to listen. Yeah. It's fun to make, but it'd be more fun if people listen. Evelyn and I are learning a lot. We're learning so good. much. <laughs> but we hope other people know. will learn, yeah. too. And we're still interested in constructive feedback. Definitely. We have a 
Twitter that you can follow us on, which is Stem Fatal Pod. And our music, our intro and outro music were done by Artichoke and the songs Mary Anning. And if you have any questions for us or things you want us to discuss on the podcast, you can also email us yeah. now at stemfatalpod at gmail.com. I it. think that's everything. How you like stem apples? Ooh, bye. Bye. By circa 1820, she ran a fossil store. Put the bones together for